Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. Today, we're going to be in the book of Proverbs, so if you have your Bible, you can flip it open there. If you have a device, feel free to pull that thing out, open up your Bible app there, uh, and we'll get to that in just a second. But as you're doing that, I want to call your attention back to my sermon from last week. My sermon last week, uh, largely we talked about the idea that we shouldn't be driven simply by gain. We shouldn't simply be driven by, by the love of money. We talked about where your treasure is, your heart will be also, that wealth is like an eagle on a mountain that lifts its wings and simply flies away. So we shouldn't be in this life simply uh, working to get wealth. That should not be our goal in this life. And so the, uh, the fun thing about this week is it's kind of the other side of that. Is Okay, if we're, not, if we're not just driven by wealth, what is it that our work should be for? And so we're going to get to that in just a second. But I threw out kind of a, a weird word last week as a joke that, that my dad would call me regularly. My dad would regularly call me the word sluggard, right? Um, and uh, largely that came from me being a, a sluggard. Um, you know, you think you're 16, 17, 18 years old. It's Saturday morning. You and your, uh, your buddies had hung out the night before. And, man, you just want to sleep. And so it's 9, 10, 11 o'clock. And I would sleep with my window open oftentimes. Um, and so by 11 o'clock, my dad was, you know, cruising in the yard pretty well. And so he would get his string trimmer in the yard and put it right next to the screen on my window and just rev that puppy a couple times just to make sure he knew or just to make sure, yeah, he knew that I knew that he was outside in the yard and it was time for me to get up and go help him uh, out there, out there as well. Um, And I hated that at the time. Like at the time, that's one of the worst ways to wake up is by a string trimmer revving in your window saying, hey, it's time for you to come use the string trimmer, right? But as a dad now, I really respect that move, right? Like really, really respect that move. And so clearly, like from context clues, I understood what a sluggard was. I, I, I understood, but I didn't really know what it meant because it's like this old school word that largely nobody, nobody uses anymore. And it turns out that if you do a word study on the word sluggard, which I did this week, it, that word sluggard only turns up in the Old Testament. Um, so it's not found anywhere in the New Testament. It also isn't found anywhere else in the Old Testament other than the book of Proverbs. But in the book of Proverbs, it mentions the word sluggard 14 times. There's 31 chapters in the book of of sluggards. There's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. That's a different book. Um, Wrote that one in high school. Um, But it turns up 14 times in the 31 chapters. And so obviously, clearly, we have something we need to learn from that word. And if we look biblically, the definition of the word, you could probably get there, is to be sluggish right? But, but the way most of us would think about it is just like laziness. There's actually greater context in that word that, that it means that you are so sluggish that you're stupid, right? And I think that's lost on us a lot of times. Like it's bad enough being called lazy. You definitely don't want to be called so lazy that you're dumb, okay? But that is largely the connotation that the word sluggard has in scripture. And so no one wants to be called sluggish, and obviously no one wants to be called Stupid, but for the sake of argument, I think a more fitting modern definition is simply overly lazy, right? Someone who is is overly lazy would be a sluggard. And the world in which we live, to be very, very clear, is actually designed in such a way that it preys on our ability to seek comfort rather than discomfort. And at first glance here, the thought is, yes, why would I ever seek discomfort? 
I want to be comfortable. And we can find this everywhere in our society. Most of you guys are going to fit into one of these things. But like, think about like the advertising and products that are largely put forth, right? Home appliances is a, uh, is a great one. Okay? Right now, if you go to replace your thermostat, you are hard-pressed to find one with just a battery and a timer with two little switches on the side, right? Because paying 50 bucks for one of those doesn't make any sense. Or you should pay $300 for a smart thermostat for a Nest. That way you don't have to walk 15 steps to your hallway, right? Too hot? That's okay. I don't want to get up and change anything. I'm going to sit on my couch and do it from my phone, right? Because that's way better. That's way easier. I'll, have, I'll be way more comfortable in that way. Now, to be fair, I have a Nest thermostat and I love it. And I sit on my couch and I change the thermostat just for fun sometimes because I can, Right? But it should go without saying, like, like even fast food, the idea of fast food, this is the same thing, right? VBS, my wife is on staff here, and she's working VBS all week, and my kids had water polo, and we had swim and all this stuff. Like, we survived on fast food this week, okay? But fast food, like, don't have a lot of time, not a problem. Right? Pay three times as much for unhealthier food that will save you maybe ten minutes, right? Solid, fast food, comfortable, easy, no problem. Or even mattresses or sleep aids, right? You know what? We all need are eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. And if you're not getting your eight hours of uninterrupted sleep, that's probably the issue of all of your issues that you have. It can be solved simply by getting a mattress with a number attached to it. And if you find the right number, man, zero in an uninterrupted sleep. You're going to be so much more comfortable. However, they failed to realize that my mattress is not the reason I don't get eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. It's my kids who come in every three hours, and if they could solve that problem for me, maybe then I would purchase their product at that point, right? But ease, comfort, that's what, that's what we want. Like you can even look to social media and everywhere on there is the thought that, that we should flee our nine-to-five lives. Like you are just in this cage if you're working nine to five. Like you, you, are, you are a slave to the man if you're working your nine to five. And so you shouldn't do that. You should go get an old bus, convert that bus into a home, and go live in remote places where it's probably illegal for you to live in a national park somewhere. And that is actually living at that point, right? Seek comfort. Don't seek discomfort. That's the only way to truly live. And like I said, maybe you fall into these categories. Maybe there's a completely separate one that you know of. But somewhere along the line, we as Americans and people all over the globe have bought into the idea that work is bad and comfort is king. We, that, that's just the belief that we have. If we can just get that last piece of technology, right, if I can just get those really comfortable pair of sweats at Costco that's only 12 bucks anyway, my life will be changed forever. Or if I can just get that blanket with armholes so I don't have to reach over the blanket to get my popcorn, like now I've arrived. Right? Now, now I can really be comfortable. And I think here's the underlying issue with the entire thing. I think the issue has become that we equate things being easy with things being better. Let me say that again. I think we equate things being easy with things being better. And I think there's instances where things being easy are definitely better, right? If you're potty training your kid and your kid takes to it like a bird to flight, like that is better, okay? Your kid being potty trained easy, that is better. But I think there's plenty of instances where things that are easy don't necessarily mean that they're better. I was actually asking Pastor Jeff about this, like, Jeff, I need like a real concrete example 
of this. Like something that, that just because it's easy doesn't mean it's better. It's like, well, they're all over the place. I said, okay, thank you, Jeff. I need a very concrete, very concrete example. He was like, well, just think about sports, right? If you think about sports, there's plenty of examples in sports. And so I landed on, on who, is, who is probably one of the biggest disappointments in the NFL ever. If you follow sports around 2007, especially if you're a Raiders fan, it's going to hurt a little bit more, more so than even being a Raiders fan, am I right? Um, but about 2007, the Raiders drafted a guy by the name of Jamarcus Russell, okay? Jamarcus Russell, largely one of the biggest disappointments in the entire NFL. And everyone had really, really high hopes for this guy because, like, incredible physical attributes, strong arm, impressive size. I think at one point... People were bragging that, man, this guy could throw 60 yards from his knees. And it's like, he better be able to throw from his knees with the Raiders' offensive line. Um, but things didn't go quite as planned for him. Throughout his entire career, he faced a ton of criticism for his work ethic or lack of work ethic. People often talked about the fact he was lazy. He didn't put in the effort to succeed. Pointed out he struggled with his weight, didn't take conditioning seriously. Right, and so this laziness largely has a massive impact on his performance on the field, right? Didn't seem to work as hard uh, as he should have in developing his skills, studying game film, understanding the playbook. As a matter of fact, at one point, the coaches were convinced he wasn't watching any film. As a big part of being a quarterback is watching game film. And so what they started to do was they started sending blank DVDs home with him just to see if he watched the game film. Right? They were like, okay, here's Jamarcus. We want you to go home. We want you to study this film. We're going to have a conversation about it tomorrow. So he came back with the DVD the next day, and they're like, did you watch the game film? He's like, yep, watched all of it. Man, we got a tough, tough time coming up this week, huh, guys? Right? And so, but there was nothing on the game film. It was completely and totally blank, right? Not, not a great look. And so because of this, he had a hard time making quick decisions, reading defenses, consistently delivering accurate passes, like all these different things. But it wasn't just his work ethic that suffered. He also had problems with time management. He'd show up late to team meetings, didn't seem fully focused at practices, right? And these kinds of behaviors really hurt his reputation, made it difficult for his coaches, for his teammates, even for the fans to be able to trust him, right? And beyond that, his physical shape. I'm pretty sure he ate his first paycheck. Right, And so because of that, he just wasn't putting in the time necessary to be an elite-level quarterback, and he left a ton of potential on the table simply because of the fact that he was overly lazy. So let's check out the proverb this week and find out why that is an issue. It's Proverbs 24. We're going to start in verse 30. This is what it said. It says, and this is the author of the book of Proverbs, most likely Solomon, writing this. He said, I went past the field of a sluggard. Past the vineyard of someone who has no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds. The stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. So the author's walking past this house. And everything is overgrown. It's in shambles, right? Weeds, walls falling over, right? Um, everything is just, just a mess. And the author assumes here that this person is a sluggard. Now, let's be really clear. Remember, the book of Proverbs is all about pulling out lessons and truths. So we don't know for a fact that this person, the house that he walked by, was indeed a sluggard. 
There could have sluggered. There could have been, you know, other circumstances that are contributing to the state of the house. Okay, so we're not saying that, that if, if you have crumbling walls or you have weeds in your flower bed, automatically you're a terrible person like this would insinuate. Okay, that's not what this is saying. He's saying, I looked at this and I applied my heart to the situation and this is the wisdom that I pulled out of it. So this person, man, they could have, they could have lost a loved one. Maybe their husband passed away and they were charged with, with keeping this estate running in some way. Maybe there was some sort of sickness or whatever it may be. Maybe nobody lived there. We don't know. But the truth that is being pulled out of this is this is what will happen if you do indeed become a sluggard. And it says, it starts out, like it starts out, even starts out as like, well, I'll get to it later, Right? It's, it's, it's a little bit of folding of hands to rest, a little bit of sleep. It doesn't say, you know what, forget about my yard, I'm done. It's just, a li- just, just give me a little bit more of some of, these, of some of these things. Essentially what it's saying, if, if you want to waste your blessings, be a sluggard. That's what this is saying. So I think there's an important piece of theology here that we need to get through, a really important piece of theology. Largely, I feel like we've kind of just swept under the rug in, uh, in West, Western Christianity because I think most of us would agree that laziness isn't great, right? I think all of us would agree that a post-church nap is awesome, but that doesn't mean that laziness is, is great. And so, uh, so often we seek out comfort which could contribute to laziness. But the bottom line in all of this, the bottom line even in this message, you can tune out for the rest of the time if you want to, is we are created for work. We are created for work. We aren't created simply to have life as easy as possible. That's not why we were created. We, were created to, we weren't created to have no resistance in life. And so to try to straighten out maybe our, our malformed theology a little bit, we need to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, we're also going to hit verse 15. But this is what it says. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. This is part of the creation narrative. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So the most notable thing that I want you to hear about this passage is this takes place before the fall of man. This takes place before Genesis chapter 3. So you don't work simply because there's a sin nature, and so because of that we've got to toil all of our lives in order, in order to make ends meet and all that. This, like work was not put into place because of the curse of man. That's not why this was put into place. This is before the, Paul, before the fall. This is before, like, kum, this, is, this is during, like, kumbaya and, and Adam and Eve are walking hand in hand with God. This is, like, perfect creation. And God is telling them here, hey, look, you were created for this. This is what you are supposed to do. God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work for it and to take care of it. So I just want you, like, uh, it's a mindset shift. But we need to get to an understanding that work is what you were created for. And I think that's hard for a lot of us. Because I think oftentimes we think about it differently. We think about it opposite. Work is what we have to do to get to life. Is oftentimes what we think. 
Like we think to ourselves, you know what? 5.01, Friday evening, now life can start. Now I can start really living. Now we can go grab some pizza with my family, go jump in the pool. Saturday, man, I'm going to smoke a brisket. Like whatever it is that you do that, that you would consider, man, this is actually living. The opposite is actually true. That we were created for work. It's right there in the Bible, right? God created you to work. And that's only, that's only the beginning of the story largely, right? Adam, he started out tending a garden, but God has much bigger plans in place for him. Genesis 1, and 28, it won't be on the screen, but it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam's dominion over the garden was supposed to expand into dominion over the entire world. That was the original intention. How? By producing offspring, teaching them to work. Right? Adam and Eve were supposed to subdue all of creation. Not this one little tiny patch of garden that God had set aside for them. The language of, of subduing and ruling largely mirrors what God did in the midst of creation. Right? God in the midst of creation turned chaos into order. Adam and Eve are supposed to turn the whole earth into the Garden of Eden. And it won't happen by magic. It was supposed to happen by concerted effort. It's a lot like my flower beds right now. Right? Maybe you guys can relate. We, played, we prayed for a long time for rain here, and we got it, and now I'm praying for a long time that my weeds will all just disappear. Right? But largely what I have to do is take that concerted effort and be like, you know what? I'm going to turn chaos into order in my flower beds. In the same way that God told Adam and Eve, hey, look, this is what you are supposed to subdue. You have dominion over all of it. Go do it. Go turn chaos into order. And so we have to understand then that work is a gift from God. Work is not a curse. This was our intention all along. But our attitude, our attitude toward work can be a product of the fall. I think that becomes the issue. The way that we view work, that's our sin nature. That's what's largely coming out. If we think to ourselves, man, i got to do work again. Man, this is terrible. I hate going to work. I'm really going to come alive and start living for Jesus after I'm done with work. Because my 9 to 5 is the absolute worst. Sin has largely stained how we view our work. So instead of viewing that as a gift, and it, it, like we may see it as, as a punishment that is, that is an unfortunate requirement for survival. It, well, I got to do it. I got bills to pay, got mouths to feed, so I got to go to work, right? I know a lot of people who largely, they're past the age of retirement and have to continue to still work. Why? Because they got bills to pay. It's a requirement for, for living. And it's viewed then as, as, a, as a curse. Work is not simply a means to provide food or, or provide clothing or provide shelter. Work is actually so much more than that. Actually, there's a, a theologian, a guy by the name of Ken Matthews. He says this about Genesis 2.15. He says, Mesopotamian accounts of human creation typically show how human beings were created for the purpose of work. But their human beings worked to supply food for the selfish, lazy gods. It's the Mesopotamian culture. 
Humans, you're, essentially what he's saying is your existence is to supply food for the lazy gods. He picks up, he says, divine travail over the incessant labors is relieved by the creation of a human workforce. This is in contrast, though, to the biblical account. The biblical account portrays God as provider for man's needs, a part of which is the honorable, meaningful labor of tilling the soil. Life without work would not be worthy of human beings. There's actually, many of you probably know, there's a famous uh, preacher and theologian. He just passed away, a guy by the name of Tim Keller. Brilliant guy. Um, And Tim Keller, largely, he notes kind of the same thing where he says all of these other gods, Mesopotamian culture, ancient Near East culture, all of these different things, largely these gods existed for man to serve them simply because they were lazy and that's the only thing that man was good for. And he says, but our God, our God is actually different. Our God showed us how it is that we were supposed to work. He showed us even in the midst of creation that he got down and he made Adam out of dust. He got his own hands dirty and got busy creating man, working to create man. And so we got to recognize then that God is our ultimate provider. And because of that, our motivation and largely our understanding of work has to change. And it's an honorable and meaningful labor as long as it's done as an act of worship. Our work should be done as an act of worship, not unto man, but unto God. Even if we pull back a bit to Genesis 1, 27 and 28, this is the cultural man- mandate, be fruitful and multiply, okay? go subdue all of creation, all that's called the cultural mandate. But God is mandating here that humans create a culture, that Adam and Eve will produce kids, and those kids will create families, and those families will ban- bound band together into cities and band together into social networks, different social networks than you guys are thinking of, but they will band together into social networks. And those networks of human beings will reflect all of the aspects of human culture, language, art, music, food, philosophy, theology. That's our responsibility as humans. And we shouldn't take that responsibility lightly. Actually, Paul, he really hammers it home here in Colossians 3, 23 and 24. It's a pretty famous verse. It says, whatever you do, everybody say to the person you came with, whatever you do. That was terrible. Do it again. (laughs) There we go. Good. Good. Just to make sure you guys are all still with me. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. I don't care how bad your boss is. I don't care how bad your work environment is. I mean, I do care if it's a terrible work environment. You need to get out out of it. Okay, but as far as your work goes, everything that you do should be working unto the Lord. And just for context here, even here in Colossians, Paul isn't just writing to like blue-collar workers or farmers or anything like that. You know who Paul's writing to here? Slaves, bond servants, people who have said, yes, I'm going to dedicate my life to serving this master. And so these are people who largely were lower, I mean, at least societally speaking, than the blue-collar workers at the time. And so he's saying, look, I don't care what it is that you do. Whatever it is you do, you should work as unto the Lord. 
So you think you got it bad? Man, these guys, you know how they became a bondservant? This is one of my favorite things, favorite word pictures in all of Scripture. In order to become a bondservant, a master would take an awl. You guys know what an awl is? An ice pick, like a thick steak. And the bondservant would then put his ear against a doorpost, and the master would shove that awl through his ear into the doorpost and then pull it out. And that little circle right there, I was like, he's mine. These are the guys that Paul is talking to here. He's saying, hey, look. Whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you do, do it unto the Lord. Right? We're, we're not commanded to work to impress other people. We're not commanded to work to pad our bank account. We're not commanded to do that. We are commanded to work just so we can honor and worship God. Our work should point men and women to our Father, not to us. And I think that's been forgotten, right? Any attempt to rob God of his glory, we consequently rob ourselves of joy because we make ourselves slaves to the opinions of men then when it comes to our work. Oh, what did my boss think about that? What do my coworkers think about that? Right, and so this largely means that our motivation to work is driven by our father's character and driven by our father's command. Why should, why should we work? Well, as bearers of his image, we work because our creator works. That's what, he, that's what he does. We want to be like our father, right? And at the same time, he also commands us to work, right? And so as our father, we trust that his commands are good for us, that his servants, or as his servants, we work to please our true and our gracious master. How? Right? We don't work for his acceptance. We don't work to meet his needs because he has no needs and there's no way we can gain his approval ever. We work because we're already accepted and we work to meet the needs of others. That's why we're commanded to work. And so this means that our mindset alone improves the quality of work regardless of our earthly boss's character. So when I said I don't care about how mean your boss is, I do care. Sorry, I shouldn't have said it that way. But as far as it goes for your work, like, I do not care. You work unto the Lord. Whether your boss is just or unjust, we should work hard and work joyfully, not to please him, not to please her, but to please God. And so having this understanding actually radically changes how we work and the things that we do to please our earthly overseers. At home, we work hard to wash dishes, right? Especially in my home. There's never a day when we don't have dirty dishes in the sink. So many. And that's even when half of our meals are on paper plates, right? And so all the time, so, so what my job at home is always dishes. Like that's, that's like my responsibility is dishes. Sarah takes care of clothes because I can't stand clothes and she can't stand dishes. So I'm like, done, I will do dishes. So when I am doing dishes, what should I be doing? I should be working unto the Lord. Those dishes should not only reflect my face, they're so clean, they should reflect the Father as well because I did them so well. That's part of it. It's not just your nine to five. It's when you get home as well. It's how you interact with your family. It's what your yard looks like. It's all of these, all of these different things, how you vacuum the floor or cook the meals or pull the wheel, because like, we are working in light of our creator's character and his commands. We are working for an audience of one. I should not be concerned 
as concerned how my wife feels about how clean the dishes are. Why? Because if I'm doing my best to scrub those dishes unto the Lord, she's going to be fine. Trust me. And the same is true of work, of the actual physical labor that we do and many of us get paid for. Right? I don't think it's an accident that this ultimate picture of mankind being redeemed is in Revelation 21.2. And Revelation, so some of you Revelation nerds just perked up for the first time. We're like, oh, we're talking about end times. No, we're not. Okay, but at the very end of all of, like, of everything and mankind being redeemed, there is an image that is per, put forth in Revelation 21.2. And that image is of a city. That image is of a culture. A bunch of people working together for the sake of mankind, for the sake and the goodness of one another to honor God with the work that they are doing. And, and, and cities, most cities, reflect human culture in its most developed and, and, and like complex forms. And granted, there's a lot of sin and all that stuff. But God's purpose for humanity, it started in a garden. But it culminates in this great like cultural center one of my seminary professors used to say that God expected Adam and Eve to split the atom. I love that. Because oftentimes you just think of Adam and Eve in a, in a lo leaf, leaf loincloth like with a hula hole going to town around the garden of good, or the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Like that's how I view it anyway. But then you think to yourself, okay, what was the mandate back in Genesis chapter 2 that you were going to, you were, like, like this whole earth is your dominion and you're going to subdue it, that, that Adam and Eve could, could split the atom and create computers and microprocessors and, and like phones and all of the technology that we have before. Why? Because he put those raw elements on earth for us to be able to develop those different things. So that like work was God's design from the beginning. And the ultimate goal was for every aspect of life and culture to be saturated with the beauty and the glory and the love of God. Sarah and I, we went to, uh, we went to England a couple years ago on our way down to Africa. And we got to see some of like the, the cathedrals and, and different things like that in, in England as we were there. And we walked through and I was just struck by the craftsmanship that goes on in those cathedrals. Now, granted, a lot of them now are just essentially empty museums and God isn't paid homage to at all, at least in the hearts of man who, who go in there oftentimes. Okay, but the craftsmanship, the things that they put forth, the architecture, the paintings that were in there, all of those things, they reflected, the intention was to reflect the glory of God. Why? Because that's why we were created. God's workmanship, the things that we do should point people back to them. But unfortunately, we have now boiled our lives down to how much work that we can get out of. And I get it. Life is hard. Work is hard. Having babies is hard. Raising kids is hard. Caring for your senior age parents is hard. But all of that work is meant to glorify God. You got babies at home? Man, change that diaper to glorify God. As ridiculous as it sounds. Genesis 1 and 2 actually make the case that unlike the rest of creation, humans were created in the image of God. And so that, that doesn't just mean we're valuable and we have inherent worth, like I said before, but it means that we were created to, in some ways, actually reflect our creator. And one of the most important ways that we do this is in our work, right? God is a working, creating God. 
And so because of that, as his image bearers, our mandate is to subdue the earth, to fill it with his glory, that God has given us all of these materials in his creation. It's our duty to use them to, so people can, can see him in a very real way by creating things ourselves, by working on things ourselves. And when we create, we reflect that glory that glory of the creator. God cares deeply about the work that we do. But beyond that, work is how we love our neighbors well. You ever thought about that? And not just like the neighbor next door to you, right? I mean, that's probably true too. You take care of your yard, your neighbor's gonna be happy with you. I love, I love you neighbor, my yard is taken care of. Let's make sure our neighborhood stays in good, good condition. Okay, but the products that we make with our hands, the things that we do, they help people flourish. I know a lot of people here are either in the ag community or a part of the ag community or connected to the ag community in some way, right, from like agronomists all the way down to, to farmers and different things like that. All of those people work together, and if they do their jobs well and correctly, guess what? We get to eat, right? So the work that they do directly contributes to us and loving us well, I mean, even think about people who create like life-saving medical products or artists who beautify public spaces or even like plumbers and electricians and other tradesmen. Yeah, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, Brian sent me a text. I was on my way here and I got a text and, and all of check-in for our kids, everything that we do for our kids to make sure we know who is here and who isn't here relies on the internet, right? Like most things we do today relies on the internet in some way. But in order to check in, we have to be connected to the internet. And I get a text message about 20 minutes before kids are supposed to be here, and he's like, Wi-Fi's down. He's like, I don't know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about that, but like, I'm going to start praying real hard. I'm pretty sure Brian's never prayed as hard as he did that morning either. But about 20 minutes later, 15 minutes later, he said, Wi-Fi's back up, we're good. I hope that that one person, I have no clue how to troubleshoot the Wi-Fi, I have no clue what cable needed to be plugged in or what button needed to be pressed, but I really hope that that guy was doing his job unto the Lord because as soon as kids started showing up, no problem. And we take some of those things for granted because we think, well, it's just something that I have to do, not something that we get to do. Or maybe you're just like a, a person who deals with data entry. Anybody in here like Excel? Excel? Okay, yeah, I saw a number or hands fly up way too fast. I've never met nerdier people than Excel people. And they love their work. And they show it off and everybody's like, it looks like a bunch of numbers to me, right? And I, I, like, I, respect, I respect them because I could never do it nearly as well as any of, the, any of they do it. But, but their, like, their work is incredibly important to businesses being able to flourish or teams being able to function or, or whatever it, it may be. It doesn't matter if you're like data entry person all the way up to the most visible CEO. Work when done with excellence and work when done with, with integrity helps our communities flourish. And we have forgotten that. And even for those of us who are caught in what feels like maybe like this is just nine to five stifling grind that we can find meaning in the seemingly meaningless by doing well whatever it is that we are asked to do. And we should all do this, not just to please our bosses that we have here on earth, but in order to please God, to glorify God with the work that we do and to be able to help those neighbors as well. And beyond that, our work is a central part of our discipleship. 
I think we forget about this a lot. I think automatically we go to discipleship, we think, oh, if I read my Bible, I pray, I'm in a small group, and I go to church, like, cool, I'm, I'm on my path towards disciple, discipleship, okay? And there are, those are all really, really important part of growing in Christ, but, but given how intimately our work is embedded in our identity as image bearers, and we should also think about our work as part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a very, very real way. I mean, think about it. After you ask somebody's name that you've met for the first time, what's your next question? What do you do? Paul talked about it all the time. Paul talked about it to the churches uh, that he wrote to. And very few of these people, if any, of his original readers would have been involved in full-time Christian ministry. So when he's talking about work, he's talking about work. Hands dirty, blue collar, let's do work. And most of them will be making a living in some sort of fashion. So he embedded all of, in all of these letters, like his application toward their daily vocation. But the reality is, is the gospel changes the way we see our work. The gospel adds a, a newfound significance. The gospel elevates us from unexcited, cynical employees to servants of the king. I mean, church, largely, what would, it, what would it look like if just the church, like we said, I'm going to leave this place and I'm going to flip my mindset to I have to work to I get to work for the Lord? What would that look like for you? And what would that look like largely in our communities? Right? Think about, man, you, you go to get your, your oil changed and that guy's a Christian. And you know, you get your oil changed, you see him every three years, right? Is that appropriate timing for oil changes? Um, but every time you see him, you're like, man, that guy is smiling. He's the dirtiest person I know, but he's smiling. He's fast. And, man, every other time he gives me a discount on this thing. Why are you so happy? You're dirty and you change oil for a living. Why did, like, in that pit, it's got to be real hot down there. Why are you so happy? Uh, I, get to, I get to honor God with my work. And I don't know if he would say it that way, but at least very, at the very least, just be like, you know what? I get the opportunity to work. I'm going to work for as long as I can, and God put me on this earth to be able to do some cool things, and, and this is one of them. Right? Or maybe it's like teachers, if you're a teacher in the room. Like, can you imagine what it looked like if every single day when you showed up and you had that one real, real hard kid that nobody wants in their class. They've actually been moved from class to class to class. They landed in yours. And now you get the opportunity to be joy and life to that kid where everybody else has completely and totally written him off. And you get on his level and you're like, hey, how, like, how can I help you succeed today? What do you need help with? Can I, stay, can I stay back at recess with you? It's my one bathroom break I get during the day, but can I at least stay back and help you a little bit with this stuff? Why would you do that? Because you're an image bearer. Because God created you to do so and your work reflects him or maybe you're just a business owner just a business owner it's a real easy job maybe you're a business owner and everything flows through you and you got contentious employees sometimes you got maybe you're dealing with people all the time and it's really really difficult and it can be really easy for you just to be completely and totally cynical with the work that you do but instead you come every single day and you're joyful, you grab Starbucks every once in a while for everybody just to make sure that they're having a great day. How can I be helpful to you? Why do you do that? Because we want to point people back to Jesus at every opportunity we get. And you will spend at least one-third of your life working in your vocation. 
And so because of that, don't you think that's a pretty important space for us to be able to point people back to Jesus? Absolutely it is. It's just another opportunity. And, and it's not just your nine-to-five vocation, right? When you get home, what would it look like? I mean, I know Rick Warren is famous for saying I, he would pull into his driveway and he wouldn't get out of his car right away. Some of you dads in here are like, yep. But what he would do is he would pull into his driveway, he would take a deep breath, he would pray to God, and he would say, God, give me the energy I need for the next three to four hours to be a good dad and be a good husband. He would leave all of his stuff in his car, he would walk inside and say, it is dad time, and that is work. And moms, when you get off, get off actual work and go in to, to your family, that is work and hard work. And we do it unto the Lord. Why? So our kids can know who Jesus is. Amen, church? Let's pray. God, we work because it's a reflection of you who sent your son to die on a cross for us. And so, God, I pray that as we leave this, cha- th- th- this place that we would change our mindset. That largely our mindset would be such that I get to work to glorify you, not I have to work to pay the bills. And God, I understand both can be true at, same, at the same time, that we both need to work. But also as we need to do that, God, I just pray that we would be full of your son, that we would be full of your spirit, that the work that we do would point people straight back to you and straight back to your son who died on a cross for us. And so today, if you haven't made a profession of faith with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you've never made a profession of faith, you have never yet said, God, I want your son to be Lord of my life. If you have not done that, I would invite you to do so with us right now. You can pray quietly in the silence of your heart. And we pray the ABCs. Simply say this. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I admit that I fall short. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for me. And see that I would choose to follow you every single day. And part of that would be me working in such a way that it glorifies and honors you. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.